short time ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this. people I think is good people. They are they have not to charge with the guilty of all the lies. Welcome back to the Cold War episode 72, Ray. Hello. Hello. Um, Ray, last time in our episode, we kind of finished with uh, this letter that Albert Einstein and Leo Zillard composed, got delivered to uh, President Roosevelt by his friend Alexander Sachs, uh, saying, hey, listen, we can build a nuclear bomb. We think the Nazis are building it. We should get onto that shit right now. We're going to need the help of the government. Roosevelt went, nah, I don't think so. Sachs said, bitch, do you want to be the next Napoleon? And he went, oh, okay, fuck. You know, if you're gonna, uh, that reminds me, I'll get my uh, black servant, nigger John, to go get me some Napoleonic brandy. And uh, that was where we got up to. Right, right. Now, Paul Watson... This Brigadier General, he doesn't waste any time. However, he is a man who goes by the book. So he obviously, the first thing you do is you have to set up a committee. And he's going to set it up with the, the director of the Bureau of Standards. And there's going to be a representative from the Army and a representative from the Navy. Because you know at some point the military has gotten get, to get involved in this. Now, the Bureau of Standards was established by an act of Congress in 1901. And it's the nation's physics laboratory charged with applying science and technology in the national interest and for public benefit. And not having the Nazis blow you up with an atomic bomb is what I would call a public benefit. So these guys are going to get working on this right away. And uh, the director of the Bureau, Dr. Lyman J. Briggs, uh, who was uh, nominated by Hubert Hubert Herber, shit. And, Hubert, uh, Hubert, 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 Anderson and for the Navy Commodore Gilbert C. Hoover, who are both ordnance experts. So again, they're going to get together, work on this. Paul doesn't play around. He cobbles this thing together, but that doesn't mean it's going to move quickly or smoothly because, you know, life gets in the way sometimes. And who was Lyman Briggs's daughter? I don't know. His daughter, Isabel Briggs. Would eventually marry Clarence Myers, so her name became Myers. And uh, Isabel and her mother came up with the Myers Briggs type indicator for uh, the. It sounds like something I took in high school. Yeah, probably. Um, Does does the rounds on Facebook a couple of times a year? Complete bullshit, um, Mm. as far as I know, Myers Briggs. But uh, you know. People seem to like it. Um, Now, the committee, the Advisory Committee on Uranium, met for the first time on the 21st of October, 1939. Now, 
As we mentioned last time, uh, Sachs didn't get to read the letter to FDR until the 11th of October. Uh, he had to come back another time the next day and actually slap him around, um, which is e- easy to do with Roosevelt because, you know, he couldn't really defend himself, couldn't get up and run yeah. away. Um, uh, so within... Uh, within <laughs> Within you know, less than two weeks later, yeah. the committee met for the first time. So they moved quickly. When, he, when they finally got on, they moved quickly. Um, so the, the role of the committee was to look into the current state of research on uranium and recommend an appropriate role for the federal government. On the 1st of November... Actually, uh, so on. only Before, Sorry. Mm-hmm. I have a little bit of detail on the on the meeting I thought was interesting. Um, because what happens before the meeting is Sachs tells Briggs that the committee should meet with some of the physicists working on fission. Briggs, Briggs agrees. That's a pretty good idea. So they have uh, Sachs, Lazard, um, Winger, Teller, Roberts, you know, the guys from the Army and the Navy. And, and Cislard spoke up and he focused on the possibility of a chain reaction in a uranium graphite system, which shows that he's still thinking about exploding natural uranium, not separating to U-235 like we were talking about earlier. Anyway, which meant this was going to be way too big for a plane to carry any kind of bomb. So right away, the Army and the Navy representative, these guys aren't excited. They pretty much shut down. They're not impressed. They said they want something applicable so they can defend the American borders. They started bitching about the cost that they need was coming, and they finished up with by saying morals, excuse me, uh, the morale of the troops is what wins wars, not weapons. And that's when Eugene Wigner, the Hungarian-American theoretical physicist, steps up. He's a very nice guy. He's, he's the sweetest guy in the whole group. He never gets he never gets angry. He never yells or pounds his fist or anything like that. And he says, excuse me, General, but if morals... Uh, shit, I did it again. If morale wins wars and not weapons, maybe perhaps we could cut the military's budget and that we get the money that we need. So the, uh, the military man completely backed down and they say, okay, we'll, we'll, you know, we'll go along this. We'll get you some money. So the Uranium Committee produced a report, like you were saying, on November 1st. It narrowly emphasized exploring a controlled chain reaction as a continuous source of power in submarines. But in addition, it noted, if the research turns out to be explosive in character, it would provide a possible source of bombs with a destructiveness vastly greater than anything known. So again, it's not all about bombs and bombs. It's about coming up with a source of power that hopefully you could use as submarines and ships and maybe tanks and have that advantage on a conventional battlefield. Yeah. Yeah. Nuclear energy for everyone. You get some, and you get some. So on the 1st of November 1939, the Uranium Committee recommended that the government should immediately obtain four tonnes of graphite, which was used to slow down the neutrons coming from the fission reaction, and 50 tonnes of uranium oxide. But there's still no proof that the whole thing would work. And even if you could create a chain reaction, even if that was possible, and no one was sure at this stage that it was, how would you fit everything that you needed into something of a size that could be used as a bomb. As Einstein said, yeah, you might be able to build a bomb small enough to get on a ship, but are you really able to put one on a plane? It's hard to imagine. Because, again, we're talking 50 tonnes of uranium oxide that they got for this. Now, I'm not going to use all of it, but uh, as we'll see later on, when they start building the first chain reaction, they needed a shit tonne of uranium and graphite. I just now, Fermi himself. Yeah. Go ahead. 
Fermi himself at this stage thought that there was, and this is a quote, little likelihood of an atomic bomb, little proof that we were not pursuing a chimera. Mm, but you have to because what's that game strategy or game theory? If the other side even has a 1% chance, you have to, you have to do it too. Um, as we're going to find out, the recommendations from this report are going to lie around for a little while, which is going to be very frustrating. We'll get to that in a minute. However, several uh, United States labs continue to work on fission studies, mostly because Fermi wrote letters to them asking them to do so. To do so. And because of his name and his stature, a lot of those people agreed with that. Now, what is interesting at this point is that the United States is trying to use carbonate, but Germany wants to use heavy, heavy water to slow down the fast neutrons generated in a nuclear fission reaction, but only Norway has the one planet, plant on the entire, in the entire world that can make heavy water. And so Germany's asking Norway for a lot of heavy water, but they get turned down. And as we're going to see, that's not a very good idea to say no to Nazi Germany. France is also wanting and asking for a lot of heavy water, as are the Russians, as are the Japanese. Everybody is exploring this. This race is not just between two or three countries. This is all the major players, and the race is truly on who's going to get there first. And as you can imagine, fear of everybody else getting it is driving everybody. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention about Alexander Sachs before we move on is yeah. um, not very well known, but he obviously invented uh, the saxophone, which is named after him. Um, can't believe he's dead. Nailed Cannot it. believe I know. George I can't. DeMichael is dead. I refuse to go there in my head. I really do. Uh, fuck. That's, that's uh, incredible. Uh, anywho... Um, <clears throat> Alexander Sachs, inventor of the saxophone. Um, uh, now, keep in mind that all of this is going on before Pearl Harbor. Right. So the U.S. isn't even officially at war. Yeah. But they're still getting behind this because they, yeah, you know, some people at least think they're going to end up in the war. Um, no one really knows how. Uh, you know, maybe some are writing letters to Japan saying, please bomb us because we need to get in the war. And you're the closest. Hitler can't bomb us. He's too far away. Somebody do something. Please right. get us into this thing. They're like, they're here. like tag team, tag team fighter, uh, <laughs> WWE. They're on the outside of the ring. They're just waiting. They've got their hand up like fucking tag me, tag me, tag me, bitch. Yeah. yeah. Like uh, my namesake, Rahalik, the founder of the Rileys, cutting off their hand at the wrist, throwing it into the ring so the other guy who's being held down can, can tag him and he can get in and beat him with the other hand. I um, don't know if you've ever tried to do a pole driver with one hand, but uh, you, know, you just need an elbow anyway, so it's okay. You just grab your wrist with the hand, blood everywhere, makes the, right. makes the mat slippery. It's great. Adds a little bit of something to it. Um, one guy who did believe that America was going to end up in, at war was Vannevar Bush, mm. the president of the Carnegie Foundation. Do you know what his relationship is to the uh, George Bush family, Ray? No, please tell me. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I think they're distantly related. I did know once before. I meant well, to look it up before smart. the thing. So I doubt if there's a connection. Uh, <laughs> hey, mate, the Bushes have taken over America many times. I mean, They're, I mean, uh, he got his, uh, his doctorate in engineering from MIT and Harvard in one year. I mean, this guy hmm. burned the candle with a flamethrower. You know what I'm saying? This guy was intense. Yeah. 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 Um, 
Now, uh, no direct familial ties, as it turns Nailed out, it. between Vannevar Bush and George Bush. Yeah, you were right. Yeah. Um, now, yeah, impressive guy, Vannevar Bush, legendary engineer and inventor. Um, he may have even been a eugenicist, I've read. I don't know if there's any fact, truth to that, but, hey, right. why not? Um, don't we all want the master race? Well, I keep I keep holding out for the the, the master race to come along. Uh, you know, it's, as far as uh, I'm concerned, the master can't. race is the S- Swedish bikini team waiting to be taken <laughs> over. So that's all. The bikini, the bikini, what the, the bikini? Swedish what? girls bikini team. It's a it's oh, a bikini it's team. Yeah, yeah. That's a thing, really. Yeah. No, it, it's, a, um, it's a running joke in America. I guess it's not over in Australia. Because you have gorgeous uh, okay. women on the beaches all the time. You don't need the Swedes. No, no our running joke is just America. America's our <laughs> running joke over here. Speaking of which, 17 school children shot yesterday. Yeah. Again. What is it? How many school shootings have you had so 18, far this year? 18. 300 so, school shootings since 2013, I read, in so, America. Someone worked out for the year of 2018, and this is just staggering. For the year of 2018, there's been a, a, a mass school shooting every 60 hours. It works out to be every 60 hours. We're recording this on the 15th February, your time? Yes. So six weeks in. Uh, for you know, If you want to hear our full thoughts on gun control, listen to our Bullshit Filter series on gun control. Anyway, yeah, as I said on that, America, I can't see it changing. It's, uh, it's not. Yeah, you're screwed. You're screwed. Yeah. Anyway, back to Vannevar Bush. V. Bush. V. Boo. Uh, v. Vannevar Bush. Um, legendary inventor and engineer, as I said. Among other things, he founded the company now known as Raytheon, which originally was involved in developing better vacuum tubes. He developed a lot of the early work that led to digital circuit design. He came up with the idea of hypertext, but he was applying it to, like, faxes. Um, uh, no, not faxes, even... Uh, 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 what, were the, what came before faxes? Telegrams? Something like that. He was vice president of MIT and the dean of the MIT School of Engineering before he became the president of the Carnegie Foundation. So, smart motherfucker, fan of a bush. Um, and in 19, June of 1940, FDR established the National Defense Research Committee with Vannevar Bush at its head. Um, he was Head Bush. Um, that's what they called him, Head Bush. Um, now, its, it's, its priorities were the development of radar, which he had worked on with his vacuum tubes, mm-hmm. proximity fuses, and anti-submarine devices. The Uranium Committee fell under its remit also. And it was reconstituted, the Uranium Committee this is, as a scientific body at this point, purged of its military membership. And in the interest of security, all foreign-born scientists were barred from the committee and further publication of articles on uranium research were banned. Now, unfortunately, all of the good scientists were foreign-born. Right. (laughs) Right. For Fermi, Rutherford, all these guys. Nah, sorry, sorry, you can't work yeah. on it. Only Americans. Fortunately, right. they had a few good ones, a few good Americans. Yeah. 
I had read that during uh, 1917, he had worked with the government, you know, developing a magnetic submarine detector. And because of that experience, he realized the conflicting problems of military and civilians working together. So it was one of his ideas. Yeah, we, we need to purge the military if, if you really want us to be able to move forward. And FDR listened to him. Uh, so, again, he brought that experience with him. Yeah, as we'll see later on, though, they make that mistake again in the Manhattan Project, uh, bringing in the military, but we'll get to that. So in 1941, plutonium was discovered. Actually, actually could we um, back up for a second? Yeah. All right. Sure. Well, I, just, I just wanted to mention something. So we, we mentioned the uh, the first meeting, the military says they're going to get them the, the money, but the money is not being forthcoming. These guys are trying to buy the uh, carbonate. They're like, what the hell's going on? And for whatever reason, just said nothing had moved on this committee's report. In early February, Paul Watson, on his own, pretty much brought it up to, to Lyman Briggs and and Briggs eventually approved the $6,000 for the graphite. It turns out that Briggs delayed giving them the money because, one, he was ill, and, two, he didn't want to spend the money. So, again, part of, it's, uh, part of it was illness, and part of it was just someone who was, you know, I mean, this is the United States during the Great Depression. They're all a little, they're all a little hesitant about spilling, spending money. Now, just to make it more interesting, uh, in April of 1941, Germany occupies Norway. And as we said earlier, Norway has the uh, Vimork hydroelectric plant, the only entity that makes heavy water. So now they suddenly have the monopoly on this, which which speeds up uh, the 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 need for the Americans to get going the following year in May of 19, excuse me, the following month, May 10th, 1940, Germany invades Belgium, the Netherlands, Luxembourg, France, and he, and FDR is bringing on these scientists. But again, these scientists are saying, you know, you want us to do things that m- might lead to this incredible bomb. But FDR gives them a speech pretty much absolving all the scientists. He's like, I need you to do this, but you will not be responsible. All the responsibility will come back on me. And that did ease some of the burden for the scientists that, it, that it, he was the one who was making the call. So again, things are starting to get serious. Even if they wanted to use heavy water, the heavy water is now gone. Germany's got all the heavy water. They're thinking it's going to speed up their program. The Americans have got to get their act together. Oh, I wanted to <laughs> add on to the Bush, uh, Venevar Bush uh, thing you were talking about. So after Poland gets invaded, he starts putting on his own. He starts putting together a team of, of different physicists and experts and uh, things like that because he knows that the United States is going to be dragged into the war. And the answer to winning a war for him is superior weapons. So he puts together this proposal for the president. He says, we ha- whoever's in charge of this has to be able to report directly to the president. We need our own money and there could be no military involved. And he's able to get a meeting with Harry Hopkins. Now, Harry Hopkins, to his credit, has been thinking along the same lines, except for his committee was going to be called the Inventors Council. But Bush's idea is better. It's already worked out. He's got people picked. Thus comes the National Defense Research Council. So again, a lot of people are thinking along the lines, but Bush took the initiative and he brought it to uh, FDR through Harry Hopkins. FDR is impressed and he gets the green light. Yeah. So as I was saying before, 1941 plutonium was discovered. Now, the importance of that is the plutonium, the 239 uh, isotope of plutonium was 1.7 times as likely as U235 to create a fission reaction. So nearly twice as likely. Yeah. Um, and they could produce large amounts of fissionable plutonium from the U238, which they had a lot of. 
So now there are two options to explore, U-235 and plutonium for creating a bomb. Meanwhile, V. Bush had been appointed director of the Office of Scientific Research and Development. This had been established uh, by an executive order on the 28th of June 1941, six days mm. after the Nazis invaded the Soviet Union, right. giving V. Bush direct access to the White House. And that was one thing he said he had to have in order for this to move forward. Now, the National Defense Research Committee is headed uh, now by a guy called James Conant, who is the president of uh, Harvard University. It gets downgraded to an advisory body, while the Uranium Committee became a section of the OSRD, Office of Scientific Research and Development, and is codenamed S1, Section 1, of the Office of Scientific Research and Development. Now, we've talked about S1 before on this show, uh, back when uh, Harry Truman was oh, still a yeah. senator running around right. trying to make a name for himself by, f- oh. f- you know, sorting out military waste. He came across this thing called S1. It was sucking up a ton of money in 1943, and he was like, hey, what, what the fuck? And they said, shut up and look the other way, ha- ha- Harry. And he said, oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, okay. all right. Yes, sir. Sorry. Meanwhile, over the pond in England, not to be Mm -hmm. left out of this story, the Brits um, uh, have set up a thing called MAUD, M-A-U-D, the Military Application of Uranium Detonation Committee, the MAUD Committee. Right. Which sounds like something out of Kingsman or James Bond, really, isn't it? Right. She's... You don't want more to come no significant... She should pose no significant problem, the Maud Committee. Um, it was set up in 1940 to research atomic weapons, and they issued a report saying that fission of U-235 could happen even with fast neutrons. You didn't need to slow these motherfuckers down. <laughs> they estimated that a critical mass of 22 pounds of U-235 would be enough to produce an enormous explosion. Now, that's, mm. that's, that's feasible. You could put yes. that on an aircraft. And they said they'd be able to do it within two years. Mm. Now, got it going on. The, yeah. the Americans read the report because they were sharing this information with the Brits. Um, and the report also reminded them that the Nazis had been working on this for years and that since uh, 1940, a large part of the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute in Berlin had been set aside for uranium research. Now, meanwhile, in September 1941, Werner Heisenberg, Mm -hmm. one of the key pioneers of quantum mechanics I mentioned in the last uh, episode, he was uh, the head of the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute and the head of the German nuclear energy project. And in September 1941, he visited Niels Bohr in Copenhagen. Right. Um, now, uh, the, the, the the Nazis had sort of taken over Denmark at this stage, so they were all on the same side. During the meeting, the, the two guys went outside for a cigarette and had a little bit of a chat, which has um, caused a lot of speculation over the years. Both of them later gave different accounts of what was said. According mm-hmm. to Heisenberg, he started to talk about nuclear energy, nuclear weapons, about the morality of the Nazis' development of it and the war. Niels Bohr seems to have shut the conversation down immediately. Ah, I do not want to talk about this in the bomb. 
Don't mention the war. I mentioned it once, but I think I got away with it. Um, now, his situation was getting kind of dicey, Niels. Uh, as it turned out, a couple of years later, he got word that he was seen as a Jew, like Lisa Meitner, Right. And they were coming to get him, so he defected to the UK. Now, when he was in the UK, he ended up meeting our old mate, Churchill. And he tried to convince Churchill that they should share the work that the Brits were doing on the bomb with Stalin and the Soviets. What? There's no well, way. Well, he said, look, we are all on the same side. We are all on the same side. We have the we common are, enemy. You have a common enemy, we are friends. You know, he's Stalin is such a happy, jolly fellow. I've seen photographs, he's always smiling. Like Vladimir Putin, probably, because he knows there's suitcase bombs scattered all the time. Um, Churchill uh, wanted him arrested for even suggesting you that they should se- share nuclear secrets. I've got my restaurant. Hot poker? He didn't get arrested, but uh, Churchill wasn't happy uh, with the idea. Now, Oppenheimer uh, agreed with Bohr, and together they tried to convince FDR that they should share their nuclear research with the Soviets. FDR actually was up for it because we know that, you know, he had a soft spot for Joe. Um, He kind of, he wanted to trust Joe. He wanted to like Joe. he, He wanted to you know, give him the benefit of the doubt that they, they, they were all on the same side and they would be able to work together. He also was very cognizant, FDR, that if he betrayed Joe and Joe found out he was betraying him, that was it. They would, you know, the relationship was fucked. Right. Um, here's, here's another option. What if FDR mm. didn't want to share with Stalin but didn't want to have to make the call? Really, all you have to do is say, well, go back to Churchill and talk to him again. And if he approves, I approve. And, and, and I know that last part, as far as I know, wasn't said. But I think maybe Church, uh, that the FDR was just getting out of having to say no. But that's probably my just paranoia or cynicism. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I don't know. We, we've spent a lot of time talking about those guys. I think FDR probably would have shared it uh, with Stalin if if he could. If anybody would have, it would have been FDR. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. But Churchill, as we know, hated Stalin, um, except when he got really drunk. Then he fucking loved him. But the rest of the time, he kind of hated him. Because, you know, Churchill had a tiny penis, and he realized the British Empire was on its way down, and the Soviets were on their way up, and all that kind of shit. But anyway, FDR sent Niels Bohr back to have another discussion with Churchill and get his... Look, if, if Pooh Bear agrees to it, uh, I'll agree. Yeah, we'll, we'll do it. And of course, Pooh Bear wasn't going to agree to it. I mean, they never happened. Anyway, V Bush, V, v-, v- Boo went to see uh, Roosevelt on the 9th of October, mm-hmm. 941. Summarized the British findings from the Maud report, discussed the cost of building a bomb, how long it would take, said, Look, we're still not sure it can be done. Got to be honest with you. Right. Um, still, theory could be crazy. Right, right. <laughs> Yes. No, I'm just saying, he, he said this is British calculations, British Look, information, this the, is what we got. This is the same guys who sent their prisoners down to paradise <laughs> with white beaches, you know, nice temperature, most no of the, except in Brisbane where it gets fucking hot. Yeah, it's just, you know, there's fishing, sports, you know, it, the, you know so the, listen, 
don't we can't take take it all with a grain of salt. Anything they say, <laughs> they stayed in this cold, polluted, oh. tiny little fucking overcrowded island. <laughs> Uh, and Never they forgotten. sent their prisoners to paradise. So, yeah. look, take yeah. it, take it yeah. with a yeah. grain of salt. So it might not be possible. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But that said, um, Roosevelt gave Bush permission to discuss the construction of a bomb with the army and to move his head as quickly as possible, but not to go beyond research and development without presidential authorization. I don't want to come in here one day and find <laughs> out fucking nuclear that bomb. you've... I find a fucking nuclear bomb in my uh, presidential bedroom, right? Or in my parking spot. Yeah. Um, he said he'd find a way to get the get the money for it if it proved feasible. Uh, asked Bush to draft a letter back to the British government, you know, uh, asking them to to partner with the Americans on this, share their research openly, right. keep going. Well, let's let's build this motherfucking thing. I'll I'll pay for it because I know you have no money. Because <laughs> we took um, it up. and. Well, <laughs> not yet, but uh, yeah. Now, Arthur Compton of the University of Chicago headed the committee into uranium research at this time. He then reported back to uh, Roosevelt on the 6th of November, just one month and a day before Pearl Harbor. Um, he said that they had concluded... He said, look, we've done very careful research. Mm-hmm. Uh, on how much uranium-235 we're going to need to produce a powerful bomb. And, uh, you know, based on uh, the greatest scientific minds and the most advanced calculations uh, we can produce, considering we don't have an iPhone or a MacBook, uh, <laughs> somewhere between four and a half pounds and, let's say... Five, six, let's just say 220 pounds. So, yeah, somewhere between four and a half pounds and 220 pounds, somewhere in that uh, vicinity, I think, would be uh, enough. So they said, you really don't know, do you? You're just making that up. Yeah, yeah, it's like... uh, How much is that going to (laughs) cost? Yeah, well, just the, the isotope separation alone... Right. And they're, as you explained earlier, they're exploring, uh, physicists all over the world at this stage are exploring different ways of separating the isotopes, um, different ways of slowing down the neutrons, etc. But just that alone is going to cost between 50 and $100 million. Now, $100 million in 1941 is roughly $1.7 billion today. They're like, listen, we need $2 billion. We really don't know if this is going to work. Right. Um, we really don't know how much of this we're going to need. We really don't know anything, but just give us the money and cross your fingers and thoughts and, give us thoughts and prayers, and uh, so, we'll see how it goes. So I, I, I am sorry, but I have to ask. This is 1941, before Pearl Harbor. We're not at war. We're still trying to come out of the Great Depression, and these schmucks in their tweed suits and their bow ties are asking for the equivalent of $1.7 billion. Yeah, and and they got it, and and this is the thing that, um, you know, I, I you know I really want to stop and and um, give respect to. I mean, this was a serious moonshot. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. This was a shit ton of money bringing together the finest minds that they could, on the hope that it panned out. 
um, and that they would need it. As it turned out, they didn't. Uh, but, you know, they, they, this is a massive scientific undertaking. As I said before, it wasn't even the, not just the science, which was cutting edge, right. but they didn't even have any uranium. They're like, fuck, now we need to go get all this uranium. We don't mm-hmm. even have any uranium in America to speak of. We have to go get it. Then we have to extract the 235 from the 238 or convert it into plutonium. Like, we, it's not, this is not an easy thing to do. This was one of the most complicated and complex scientific um uh, 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 experiments ever yeah. done, yeah. and they were trying to do it uh, under extreme pressure and, and on extremely compressed time frames. So it was it was a supremely impressive a series of events that that took place here. So. Bush forwarded their findings from Compton to Roosevelt um, on the 27th of November. Roosevelt didn't reply until the 19th of January, Mm. nearly two months later, 1942. And when he did, of course, he was the commander-in-chief of a nation at war. If, if I could uh, back up for a second, there's a couple things I want to cover, but then I want to come back and drill down into him saying yes after the United States is at war. So right before Bush gives FDR the Maud report, Lord Chadwick, who we mentioned in the, uh, the previous episode in Britain, he has been doing his own cross-section measurements. Um, and he realizes that the nuclear bomb is inevitable. He says later on, he wrote, I realized that a nuclear bomb was not only possible, it was inevitable. Sooner or later, these ideas could not be peculiar to us. Everybody would think about them before long and some country would put them into action. And I had no one to talk to. I had no one to talk to about it. And after that, for the, for the next 28 years of his life, thinking about a nuclear bomb, about what it could do, who's going to get it first, what could happen, he literally had to take sleeping pills. This is a scientist. He had to take sleeping pills for the next 28 years every night before he could get to sleep because it, it would just filled him with so much fear of what was going to happen, whoever got there first. And, and, and as we're going to see earlier, excuse me, as we're going to see later, they were thinking that, uh, again, the, the very atmosphere of the planet might be set on fire or might be ignited by, by what they're doing here. So he was definitely afraid of all that. And you're probably going to mention the top policy groups, so I, I won't mention that. But there was something I wanted to mention about Roosevelt not replying to these guys' requests for 50 or $100 million until after the United States is at war. Um, the question comes down to, for me, is what did FDR know and when did he know it about the attack on Pearl Harbor? John Tolan has written several books on the Pacific Theater. His wife is Japanese. She helps him translate. And in his, his first book, he said Pearl Harbor was completely the Japanese fault. They, they snuck up. They sucker punched us, whatever. The second book, he says... It was the people who were negotiating on the Japanese side and the American side. They did not talk in good faith. Neither one of them had any intention of backing down. They were both trying to beat, uh, browbeat the other one, and they were and they were both determined for war. So it was both of their faults. But in his third book, Infamy, he says FDR knew the attack on Pearl Harbor was coming, and he let it happen. That he knew that yes, some Americans were going to die, a couple thousand, but after. Japan attacks us and they don't declare war and it, we and Americans see it as a sucker punch. FDR is going to have everything he ever wanted. He could go to Congress and ask for a hundred million dollars and they're going to give it to him. He's going to be able to ask for all these supplies. He's going to be able to 
turn the coasts of the United States into military defensive camps. He's going to be able to take all the scientists. He's going to be able to do whatever he wants, and Congress will not bat an eye because they will be so angry at the Japanese they're going to want revenge. I don't know if I believe that or not, but it certainly is something that's that's possible because, you know, he had a lot of information. And FDR purposefully didn't write stuff down. He was a very uh, secretive guy, played things close to the chest. He would often tell one person one thing and another person another. He, he, he did that all the time. That's just the way he operated. He kept it all in his head. So we'll never know what he knew. But the point is, he does not reply to these guys until after Pearl Harbor is attacked. And now he can literally say to them, I will get you the money that, you know, they couldn't possibly imagine amounts like this before before something like this. I'd be interested to see what the evidence is for the f- for the theory that FDR knew it, the Pearl Harbor attack was yeah, coming, it, because, I mean, that's a classic theory that I've heard for decades, and every time I've looked into it, I've said, I've, I've read that there's absolutely no evidence to support that. So yeah. do, what, what did Tolan's you think of Tolan's evidence? It, it's it's weak. It's taking several weird things that are weird, but then stringing them together, uh, like Marshall. The 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 um, the whereabouts of General Marshall aren't known the night before Pearl Harbor. So he just takes several things that are a bit odd and strings them together. So to me, it's not very strong evidence. But uh, again, the very, the bottom line is FDR's problems were solved. He can tell these guys, yeah, $100 million, no problem. I can make it happen. And I know you're going to need more after that. That's just for this one part of it. So we'll never know. But Pearl Harbor took care of all of his worries as far as being able to say America didn't try to give it its all in developing the bomb first. I think as we've talked about on this series earlier on, America was at war with Japan before Pearl Harbor uh, because they had launched uh, economic blockades against Japan and were preventing them from getting access to the resources that they needed, uh, petroleum and that sort of thing. They had sent their fleet to Hawaii uh, specifically to stop the Japanese being able to you know, get access to the resources that they needed for the war in Asia. Uh, so they were at war with them, just they hadn't declared it. It wasn't declared. It was On just, uh, yeah. yeah, the Americans were fighting an economic war, which is still a war. It's, you know, you, just because you haven't dropped the bomb on somebody doesn't mean you're not at war with them. Um, because you haven't declared war doesn't mean you're not at war with them. It was a... It was a, 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 a What's the word I'm trying to think of? An, uh, um, secret war. No, see, not secret, but unofficial. Yeah, let's go with that. It was war, an unofficial war. war. Yeah. Well, it wasn't passive because it was active, but they, they, weren't, they weren't shooting guns at each other, but that's not the only kind of war. Right. Anywho. Um, right. So, yes. So now they get the money. He gives the project the green light. Uh, all of the work around the uranium research now is taken away from the NDRC and given to the newly formed top policy group, TPG. Is this like the third or fourth group that's been formed? Yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you got to move it around. got to keep people on their toes. Uh, this one had uh, Bush, Conant, Vice President Henry Wallace, Secretary of War Henry Stimson, and the Army Chief of Staff George C. Marshall running the top policy group. Um, 
Now, of course, now that they're at war, money isn't going to be a problem. Everything is is top priority now, particularly building a weapon that could beat the Nazis and trying to beat the Nazis to having the world's first nuclear weapon. Uh, now, because security is a high priority, a high priority, right? Uh, it was suggested that the S-1 project should be put under the control of one of the armed forces, and it was decided that the army and its corps of engineers was the most suitable. Mm. So Roosevelt approved the army involvement, uh, and the army officers started to join in the S-1 meetings early in 1942. Now, research up until now had been happening all over the country at different universities. In April of 1942, they began to centralise everything in Chicago, and they took space wherever they could find it. Now, famously, one of the spaces that they used to build uh, a laboratory was a racket court under the West Grandstand at an old football stadium <laughs> called Stag Field. It wasn't being used anymore, no. but they grabbed this secret underground and started to build what became known as Chicago Pile 1 the world's first artificial nuclear reactor. Underground at a football stadium (laughs) in the middle of Chicago. I hope nothing goes wrong. I I read one book that said uh, the university had long ago decided that academics was going to be a priority over football, which, you know, good for them because that's what they're there for. So, yeah, there's this unused, these these vast unused rooms under the stands, the the squash courts and things like that. But, But it was interesting because they had stuff spread out all over the place. Columbia University, an aircraft hangar on Long Island where Goodyear housed their blimps, Berkeley in California. But Compton of Chicago had the best argument. He said, the board of the university has promised to give me anything and everything I want. And besides the coasts, the East and West Coast, those are all being militarized and organized for a war effort for defense. So forget the coast. Let's do it here in Chicago. And he bet another university president a five cent cigar that Chicago would have a chain reaction going going by the end of 1942. Do you know who Stag Field was named after, Ray? I just assumed it was an awesome stag party, but no, tell me. <laughs> he had an awesome name. Amos Alonzo Stag. Stag, how's it going, mate? A- Amos Alonzo Stag. <laughs> Fuck me. His parents hated him, obviously. A- Amos. A A S. This is uh, initials. Yeah, ass. Um, he was an uh, uh, American athlete and a college coach, uh, football coach, served as the head football coach at the International Young Men's Christian Association Training School, a.k.a. Springfield College, then the University of Chicago, then the College of the Pacific. Um, yeah, anyway, so it was named after him. It had originally, though, been called Marshall Field. Mm. Do you know who that was named after? Someone named Marshall? Actually, someone named Marshall Field. Oh, that was his actual no, fucking name. What are, what are we going to call this field? Let's call it Marshall Field. Oh, after who? Marshall Field? Um, he was an uh, entrepreneur, founder of Marshall Field & Company, Chicago-based department stores. Anyway, um, yeah, so they're building a nuclear reactor in the middle of Chicago underground <laughs> in secret. What could go wrong with that? Nothing. No, that's nothing. <laughs> Nothing can go wrong with that. I don't see any problem with that at all. Now, it gets... Yeah. So the, the 
um, project is put under the control of a guy called Colonel James C. Marshall. Mm Mm-hmm. Not to be confused with George Marshall. Um, he's a West Point graduate and he had a lot of experience building air bases. And he's put in charge of the new Laboratory for the Development of Substitute Metals, or the DSM. Um, and in New York, he starts building the Manhattan Engineer District, mm. the MED, right. which is why it's known as the Manhattan Project. Got, Got that some of the work was being done in Manhattan. Now, Marshall was a bit of a cunt, uh, as it turns out. Um, Didn't understand, really, what they were trying to do here. uh, When they said they needed to... They found a a space, the test site in Tennessee that was available. He kind of dragged his feet, didn't want to commit to it, didn't really know what was going on. He was one of these military guys that didn't get it. Yeah. And I don't know, interesting whether or not he saw it as a threat, whether he thought these nerdy scientist guys were just a waste of time and money, whether he thought, shit, that $100 million we could be using to do something real, this is all theory, we don't know if this is going to work. Um, Anyway, in June of 1942, he had a discussion with Norman Hilbury, Mm -hmm. uh, who was one of Compton's top assistants. He said, uh, so Hilbury, how many bombs you guys going to build here? Annie and Hilbury said, uh, oh, one, maybe two. <laughs> he said, what? What in Sam Hill are you going to do with one or two bombs? You can't win a war with one bomb, son. Oh, and he said, well, yeah, man, but you know how fucking hard it is to get uranium-235? Like, there ain't a lot of it, and that's all we're going to be able to do. That's it. Yeah. That's it. That's going to cost us a couple of billion dollars to build one bomb. Like I get that, yeah. He said, uh, Marshall said, that's crazy. He's, this is actually a quote. There is a fundamental principle in military matters, which, and I don't care how fantastic this atomic device may prove to be, is not going to be violated. This is one's ability to continue delivering the weapon. And it's this that determines whether the weapon is useful. If you folks succeed in making only one bomb, I can assure you it would never even be used. The only basic principle on which the military can operate is the ability to continue to deliver. you got to sit down and get reorientated, son. The thing we're talking about is not a number of bombs. What we are talking about is production capacity to continue delivering bombs at a given rate. That, you will discover, is a very different problem. I just want to say, if you don't watch it, you're going to be like a Roman emperor and blow a blood vessel in your brain and die. (laughs) General? Or Colonel, whatever he was. Now, when the news got back to the scientists, they were beside themselves, particularly Zillard. Um, He wrote a memo to Vannevar Bush where he said, In 1939, the government of the United States was given a unique opportunity by Providence, a.k.a. me, motherfuckers. (laughs) I am Providence. This opportunity was lost. Nobody can tell now whether we shall be ready before German bombs wipe out American cities. Such scanty information as we have about work in Germany is not reassuring. And all one can say with certainty is that we could move at least twice as fast if our difficulties were eliminated. He wanted to get rid of the army. He said the army is slowing us down. Mm -hmm. Which I find fascinating. So you would think... That the army, yeah. given the opportunity to build a motherfucking big bomb, would have been all for it. 
You know, yeah. like, yeah, let's look, we got the money. Let's just go, man. Like, this could change this everything. Yeah. yeah. Well, this could save American lives. Um, uh, but, no, at this point in time, the army is just getting in the way, slowing things down. Marshall didn't get it. Wow. So I want to back up for a second. So the day before Pearl Harbor... In, on the Russian front, General Zhukov launches a massive counterattack against the Nazis. It's over 100 miles long. I mean, this thing is massive. The Nazis are only 30 miles away from Moscow. And the Germans realize back in Berlin that this is going to be the first time that Blitzkrieg isn't going to work. So out of reaction to that, they double down on their organization for the atomic bomb and they streamlined the entire, they streamlined the entire organization. And just like these guys in America have switched committees and brought in new people, the Germans put their top people on it, people like Herman Goering and things like that. So they're, they're doubling down to get the atomic bomb because they've run into a, uh oh, in Russia. So in the spring of 42, Heisenberg tells this uber group of people that it is possible to make an atomic bomb and that he explained to them, to the best of his ability, how far the Americans had gotten and what they were working on. And he was talking about plutonium, even though he didn't know the name plutonium, he, was just, he just knew that they had made a leap forward. So Albert Speer, the, his, Hitler's architect, who's also in charge of armaments, even though he's not qualified for that, he gathers all this information and he takes it back to Hitler. He tells Hitler everything that he, that he can understand himself, and Hitler's not impressed. He's like, whoa, 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 this is going to take way too long. We have to have something now. Um, and Hitler actually says something like, I'll be dead before this happens, before you know they can find the nuclear bomb, which in one way is true, and another way not true. So anyway, so what the Germans do is they change their emphasis. Now they want to work on nuclear energy to drive their battleships, their uh, their uh, submarines, their tanks. So they still want to win conventionally, but now they're going to do it with nuclear-powered weapons. But of course, the West doesn't know this, so FDR pushes on with his program thinking that the uh, the Germans are still out to, to make nuclear bombs, and they are, but it's no longer their number one priority. Now they want to develop nuclear power. The Germans actually brought in Alexander Sachs, and he said, let me tell you the story about Napoleon. <laughs> Hitler said... <laughs> and he, he went to what Paris. He, know? he went to Paris, and he got Napoleon's robes or something. I don't know what he did. He didn't have the wine, so he went to Paris and got his robe. Yeah. So Marshall uh, is given the boot, and on the 17th of September 1942, the Army appoints Colonel Leslie R. Groves to be uh, the head of the project. LG! Uh, He's promoted to Brigadier General six days later. Now, Groves was an engineer, Mm -hmm. not just a military man, but uh, an engineer. Like He's a scientist. He's a smart guy. He he gets it. He's smart. Right. Um, he had built the Pentagon yeah. before this. That was a little project that he did, a little <laughs> side project, built the Pentagon. Uh, was known for his strong administrative abilities. Mm-hmm. Also known for being a complete cunt. Uh, no. Part of the course. No one, no one liked Groves. Yeah. Uh, he, he was a complete douchebag, but got shit done. Yeah. That's what now, within two days of his appointment, he had approved the Tennessee site, Boom. and uh, he started to move fast. Obviously, that was Marshall's problem. In addition, he moved the Manhattan Engineer District headquarters out of New York to Washington. Mm-hmm. 
so they could work more closely with uh, other federal agencies. He also uh, recognised the talents of Marshall's deputy, Colonel Kenneth D. Nichols, and arranged Nichols to work as his chief aide. Now, Nichols later said that Groves was the biggest SOB I have ever worked for. He is most demanding. He is most critical. He's always a driver, never a praiser. He is abrasive and sarcastic. He disregards all normal organisational channels. He's extremely intelligent. He has the guts to make timely, difficult decisions. He is the most egotistical man I know. He knows he is right and so sticks by his decision. He abounds with energy and expects everyone to work as hard or even harder than he does. If I had to do my part of the atomic bomb project over again and had the privilege of picking my boss, I would pick General Groves. I I have to ask you, what is it about, what do you think it is about this hard ass that earns that kind of loyalty if the guy is being sincere? Well, I don't know, but it reminds me of the stories you hear about Steve Jobs. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, that could be a description of Steve Jobs. Very demanding. Everyone I've ever read who wrote about working with Steve said, arsehole, complete arsehole to work with. You know, just critical, demanding, always driving, abrasive, sarcastic. Um, And I did the greatest work of my career working for him because... He pushed me and pushed me and pushed me to do my best work. So, you know, I think uh, it takes a certain personality to be able to work for guys like that. You have to have, you know, thick skin and the confidence to to go with it. Right, Um, take the punches. uh, Yeah, yeah, and and, and just, uh, yeah, I don't know. But I do want to point out that a couple of years later, after the war, mm-hmm. uh, early in 1948, the chief of staff of the United States Army, uh, a man by the name of Dwight Eisenhower, I'm not sure if you've ever heard of him before, right. he, um, he calls Groves into a meeting and says, listen, you're an asshole. Um, I've had such a long list of complaints about your rudeness, arrogance, insensitivity, contempt for the rules and manoeuvring for promotion out of turn that I just want to tell you, you're never going to get promoted to become the chief of engineers. Oh, damn. And so Groves, Groves quit the army. He was like, motherfucker, I built the atomic bomb. I built the Pentagon. And I was like, Penta yeah, motherfucking I don't care. I don't care. You're an asshole. So um, it just got, I mean, I find it fascinating because like this guy obviously was brilliant, obviously played a very significant role in making the the bomb happen, um, which was a huge success. But being an arsehole, he was too much arsehole. The bomb, (laughs) on one hand, you had to balance it out. Bomb on one hand, arsehole on the other hand. Too much ass. And yeah, Eisenhower's like, nah. Too much ass. He ended up going off to join Sperry Rand, a major military contractor, not to be confused with the Rand Corporation, mm-hmm. a different effort. Sperry Rand, best known for inventing the Univac computer. Mm. So uh, there you go. Not, not a bad track record for Groves. Built the Pentagon, built the bomb, and then uh, helped invent the first, uh, you know, one of the first computers. 
I wanted to add something about the uh, the, the Leslie Grove story because so so like you said he he built the he just finished up the Pentagon he'd been you know spent tons of money been doing it for years and he's about to get um, shipped overseas he's about to get a command and he is just super excited he's super happy he wants to get the hell out of there but his commanding officer General Somerville comes to him and he says about that overseas duty you can tell them no. Groves goes, why? The Secretary of War has selected you for a very important assignment. Where? In Washington. But I don't want to stay in Washington. I want out of here. And that's when his his commanding officer says, if you do the job right, it will win the war. And so Groves later on wrote, men like to recall in later years what they said at some important or possibly historic moment in their lives. I remember only too well what I said to General Somerville that day. All I could master was a, oh, Okay, so uh, so this this hard ass <laughs> man brought to his knees by saying, "Hey, we're going to put you in, in charge of something." Yeah, you don't want to do it. Fuck you. Shut up. But if you do it right, you can win this war. And this is you know recently after Pearl Harbor. So how would you not be humbled by that? Yeah. Just I mean I mean, just the concept of that. Uh, like yeah, we well, have to go back and imagine a world before nuclear weapons. Before most people had even heard of atomic energy and, and, and the, the capabilities of it, to be told that there's a secret project that you're going to be put in control of that could single-handedly win the war yeah. must have been a mind fuck. I mean, could you have believed that? Could you have taken that seriously? Well, I don't know. He, he, he was. I think he had a clusterfuck of a brain for about five seconds, but like you said, his ego was so massive. He probably shook, shook it off and went, oh, okay, I can do this. Of course, course I can. <laughs> Yeah, you picked the right of course I can do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, So on the 5th of October 1942, Groves paid his first visit to the laboratory in Chicago. He meets Compton, Fermi, Zillard, Hilberry, other top scientists who were there. Obviously, they've started allowing foreign-born scientists in now because Fermi, as we know, is Italian. Zillard was, what, Hungarian? Mm -hmm. Letting him in. Um, At the end of the meeting, Groves says, give me your best estimates. How much fissionable material are you going to need to build a single bomb? And how confident are you in your estimates? Mm -hmm. So they told him how much they thought they were going to need, somewhere between four and a half and 220 pounds. (laughs) Give or take. He goes, right. Well, that's that's a big, bit of fucking room there. Um, How confident are you in that estimate? Now, he said that he expected them to say, oh, you know, 50% confident, 75% confident. They said... Uh, a factor of 10. 10% confident. <laughs> On a good Which day. meant that if they needed, let's say, 100 pounds of plutonium to make a bomb, <laughs> really it could be anywhere between 10 pounds and 1,000 pounds. But that's what makes each they morning were... exciting. <laughs> Not knowing what's going to happen. Groves said it was like being a caterer who was told he has to be prepared to serve anywhere between 10 and 1,000 guests for dinner. That's a good point. That's a very good point. Like, he's he's trying to run the administration for this. How much graphite and uranium do I need to buy? You don't want to buy 10 times too much. That's a waste of money and all this effort. You don't want to buy 10 times too little. How much do I need to build? We don't know. Just get everything you can. Just start stacking. How much do I need to buy? Buy it all. It's so is basically, yeah. 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 Oh my God. Now, in December of that year, they finally got experimental proof 
that plutonium could actually be created from uranium-238. So they push ahead with the plutonium side of the research as well. Meanwhile, Robert Oppenheimer, mm-hmm. we've mentioned briefly a few times before, is uh, put in charge of a group of theoretical physicists known as the Luminaries. I think that was a name he coined for them, the Luminaries. Right. Basically, we're the smartest motherfuckers on the planet, is, the, is what they were calling themselves. Because <laughs> they were humble. Right. And, um, yeah. The smart motherfuckers is what they called themselves. <laughs> they had wallets with smart motherfuckers <laughs> embroidered in them. SMF. Yeah. How do I know which one's your wallet? It's the one with smart motherfucker written on it. Um, now, Oppenheimer's an interesting character. And uh, my mate uh, in LA, Victor Santoki, and I uh, spoke about it. He's a big fan of Robert Oppenheimer because mm-hmm. uh, Victor lives next to Caltech where uh, Robert Oppenheimer spent many years. Nice. And we drove past there. He said, see that office there? That office is where Robert Oppenheimer was banging his secretary oh, or something like that. I don't know. Good for him. Would yeah. bang his secretaries. Um Oppenheimer is a really interesting character, born to a wealthy Jewish textile importer who had a massive collection of rare paintings. He had some Picassos and some Van Goghs in his private collection. So he was born into privilege um, and did a lot of his early work on astrophysics and quantum field theory and nuclear physics. Also claimed to be a communist. And that's, that's who you want to put in charge of your <laughs> nuclear weapon project, a commie. And he wasn't shy about it either, which I love about him. When he joined the Manhattan Project in 1942, they, he had to fill out a personal security questionnaire and it asked, have, have you, are you or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? And he said, motherfucker, I've been a member of just about every communist front organisation on the West Coast. What, what? He actually, he wrote that in his security profile. Bitch, please. (laughs) You gotta love, you gotta love it. Like, do you think he was trying not to get the job or he just thought, I'm so smart, I can write whatever I want because you you can't do this without me. You need me. Well, in a couple of minutes, I'll give you a more detailed thing about why he, why he was able to get away with that. Oh, Okay. Well, why don't you do it now, bitch? Okay. Well, um, so I thought this was interesting. So um, where did it go? Ba, ba, ba. Yeah, so Robert Oppenheimer later wrote, that he goes, you know, before they came to me, <clears throat> I was not interested in, I did not read about economics or politics. I was almost wholly divorced from the contemporary scene in this country. I'd never read a newspaper or a current magazine like Time or Harper's. I had no radio, no telephone. I learned of the stock market crash in the fall of 1929, only long after the event. The first time I ever voted was in the presidential election of 1936, and so many of my friends thought I was indifferent to contemporary affairs, and they used to chide me about being too highbrow. But during the mid-1930s, several things changed his mind. Uh, he didn't like the treatment dr- treatment of the Jews by the Germans, because uh, he had relatives in Germany. He saw that he eventually allowed himself to see what the Depression was doing to his students. He could teach them everything that they knew, but they couldn't get jobs because the economy was so bad. And of course, the last one, like you mentioned earlier, one of the w- women he was banging, Jean Matlock, she was an anti-Semite 
Fahrenheit, yes, but she was a Berkeley professor, a medievalist. She was also a communist, so she was dragging him to all these left-wing parties, left-wing organizations in the Friends. He became concerned about the, the Spanish Civil War, the migrant workers in California. So basically, he became a massive lefty because he was concerned about people. He read Ingalls, he read Marx, but he said it made no sense to him. But this is my favorite part. So Oppenheimer meets General Groves at Berkeley in October of 1942, and they start speaking. Oppenheimer recommends that he need that Groves needs to centralize locations. So when a problem comes up, they can all jump in on it, talk about it, work it out, and overcome the problems. Because that's how scientists work. They they work with each other. They bounce ideas off each other. But this entire time during this conversation, Groves is, is sizing um, Oppenheimer up for not only joining his uh, his project but also his leadership. But there's several problems. One, Oppenheimer has never managed a large group of men like this before. And pretty much everybody that is working for Groves has a Nobel Peace Prize. Oppenheimer did not. And as you mentioned just a second ago, he was a massive, massive lefty that no one thought they can trust that everybody, the FBI wanted to lock, to lock him away. But Groves said after talking to him, the man was a genius. Oh, yeah, the other ones were bright, but they weren't geniuses. Oppenheimer could talk to you about any subject that you brought up. The only thing he didn't know was sports. But uh, but uh, but Groves recognized the genius that this man was, and he knew he had to have him, and he had to have him take charge of the project. Yeah. Now, he was also, uh, Oppenheimer, this is on the board of the ACLU, and in 1941, the FBI opened a file on him and had him listed as a CDI, Custodial Detention Index. Now, these are the people that would be immediately arrested in case of a national emergency. No, you're going away. You haven't done anything wrong, but you're going to jail because we don't trust you. Damn, that's hard. Now, again, Victor, when we were in L.A., walking around L.A., I was looking for a SIM card. He told me that I think it was his stepfather, Mm -hmm. uh, might have been his father or his stepfather, one of the two, was also uh, uh, on the CDI list. Oh, God. Said he got to see his FBI file and and his father was on the CDI list or his stepfather, one of the two. So, yeah, just because he was a lefty. And uh, the lefties, the Americans (laughs) had a list of all the lefties. Uh, under what's his face, um, Jay Edgar, yeah. and uh, yeah, this is just a bunch of good bunch of people we would just arrest if uh, if we th- thought things were out of control. We just go and arrest all these people who have shown lefty uh, tendencies. I'm probably on that list. But, uh, but if I'm attacked <laughs> by Nazi Germany, a far right fascist country. Why are the lefties in my country? Now, if I'm attacked by a Soviet Union, yeah, I can see them being fifth columnists. But if it's a far-right fascist, how are the lefties? Never mind. It's not going to make sense. Yeah. 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 Just fear. Um, Now, during the entire time of the Manhattan Project, Oppenheimer was being closely watched by both the FBI and the project's internal security arm. And at one point, they even considered getting rid of him. But Groves put his foot down. He said he was just too important. I don't care if he's a commie. We've got to have him on side because we need him. We can't do the project without him. Unfortunately, the uh, consensus of Oppenheimer's luminaries was some bad news at this juncture. They now thought it was going to take twice as much (laughs) fissionable material as they previously thought to make a bomb. Twice as much, give or take a factor of 10. So maybe like 20 times as much? Yeah. $15 yeah. million. Dollars. Could, could be. We don't know. But there was also some good news. Oh, thank God. 
They were now confident that it might be theoretically possible to use fusion instead of fission mm. to make a nuclear bomb. Well, that is good news. But, well, uh, and to explain why that is good news, we will have to wait till the next episode. Oh. I want to finish with another review. This is from El Codillo in uh, Canada, because that's the most Canadian-sounding <laughs> username I've ever heard, El Codillo. <laughs> Master Thespians, El Codillo writes, I have listened to many podcasts on the Cold War history in English, French, Spanish, and Russian. Show off. And I can tell you that this is one of the best out there. It is the most... What do you mean, one of the best? Come on, motherfucker. It is the most thorough and complete. It is also one of the least biased. The podcasters have really tried to show all sides of the story and have achieved what few podcasters, especially English-language podcasters have been able to do, which is to understand and empathise with the other, in this case, the Russian point of view. Achieving empathy with other peoples is one of the best ways to make the world a better place and reduce the chance of future peace. Really? Reduce the chance of future peace? I I don't think that's what you meant to say. I don't think that's what you meant to say, El Cordillo. Increase the chance of future peace, maybe. Yeah. So I encourage everyone, especially North Americans, to subscribe and give this podcast a try. The only other podcast out there that comes close to it is Vivat Historia, a Russian podcast, Mm. which is a scary alternate universe version of this one. It also has a back and forth with an excellent host and professional historian, Sergei Vivatenko, who is very knowledgeable and tries to show good qualities in people that most Russians despise, such as Churchill and Truman. Vivatenko, or Russian Cam, explains Western (laughs) motives in a non-biased way and not portraying them as evil comic book figures. Russian Cam's co-host is Alexandra Romashova, who is a hot Russian babe and not a middle-aged balding man. (laughs) Hey, I'm right here. But who am I to judge who a man chooses as his co-host? And instead of giggling when Russian Cam makes an inappropriate comment, Russian Ray keeps him in line. So in summary, (laughs) these are the two best Cold War podcasts out there. Unless you speak Russian, though, this is the only option for you. Finally, why the title Master Thespians? Well, clearly because of their ability to swear and not make it sound like fingernails on a blackboard. I have teenagers who watch junk teenage movies where everyone swears and it sounds awful. It takes a true master thespian to make profanity sound like a cantata by Bach to one's ears. (laughs) These gentlemen have achieved this. The only other person who ever came close to perfection is Tarantino in Pulp Fiction. From your fan, Rafid Haidar from Canada. Wow, Rafid, that's... Nice. A masterpiece, and we've got to try and get uh, Russian Cam and Russian Ray onto the show. I wonder if they speak English. If if so, we have to get yeah. them on the show, awesome. man. That would be awesome. Well, these videos of her. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> send us an email, Rafid, uh, with your address, and we'll send you a token of our appreciation for taking the time and effort yes. to leave that review. Uh, we'll be back next week with uh, episode 73, continuing the story of the Manhattan Project. An iron curtain has descended across the continent.
military buildup on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere. Like he done before. Tell you what. Mm, mm, about the about the rabbit. Not tonight. Come on, dude. Tell like he done before. Please, please, please. 